0: Okay, I think we should get started. I know that some people have to leave as we approach 1 o'clock. And I've told the guest speaker that this doesn't mean that you've gotten disgusted uh, with him, uh, but that you have a class uh, or some other obligation. Uh, so uh, let me start the proceedings then. This is this is the first in a four-lecture series uh, entitled Islam, um, terrorism and uh, democracy. I was a little hesitant, uh, actually, about putting the word terrorism uh, there. I would have preferred, I think, just to have said Islam and democracy, uh, maybe. But the terrorism uh, is there, uh, not least because the title that John Antelis, our speaker for today, chose had the word terrorism in it. And so I thought, ah, well, uh, we might as well put the two, uh, the two ends of the spectrum here, Islam, terrorism, and democracy, uh, in the title of, uh, of the lecture series. Uh, the main concern, uh, the main concern, uh, in choosing speakers and in inviting speakers, uh, was to, uh, to ask the question, uh, in Muslim majority countries, what is the relationship between Islam and democracy? Uh, do Islamic movements, Islamist movements, Islamic fundamentalist movements in particular, do they represent a threat, uh, to democracy and what kind of a threat it is, is it and so forth? So, so sort of the bottom line here in the series in general is to try to explore this question of the relationship between Islam and uh, democracy. Uh, our first speaker is um, uh, Professor John Entelis uh, from Fordham University. He's a professor of political science and director of the Middle East Studies uh, program at uh, Fordham uh, University and has been there, I noticed, for uh, a long time. Um, not as long as me, however. Uh, I came to Ohio State in 1965, so I kind of have a record there, I guess. Uh, but uh, he's been at Fordham since 1970. This is an unusual pattern of which we are uh, two representatives. Um, uh, since 1970, uh, Professor Intelis has been on the faculty of the Political Science Department uh, at Fordham University, where he has served as Departmental Chair, Director of the Graduate Program in International Political Economy and Development, and Director of the Middle East Studies Program, uh, a position that he has held from 1980 uh, to uh, the present. Um, Uh, John Atteles has written on many Middle Eastern subjects, but he's especially known as uh, a specialist on North Africa and within uh, North Africa on Algeria. Um, He was, in the early 1990s, uh, late 1980s and early 1990s, uh, one of the premier specialists in the country who was called upon to Inform us, inform uh, the rest of the country, academic, uh, political, governmental, and so forth, uh, about what was going on in Algeria. As you had the rise of an Islamist movement, uh, elections, uh, the possibility of an Islamist uh, government taking over, uh, and then of course the crackdown on that government, uh, by or crackdown on that movement uh, by the uh, secular nationalist uh, government of the time, uh, and the ensuing tragedy of 120. Uh, uh, 120,000 lives uh, or more uh, that were lost subsequently uh, as a result of the civil war between uh, the Islamist movement and uh, the Algerian government so the issues that were raised at that time uh, in Algeria the issue was being raised really for the first time I guess in a Sunni country we of course had already had Iran, but for the first time in a Sunni country, what happens when an Islamist movement uh, gets large, takes the electoral uh, route, uh, and possibly comes to power? What are the consequences uh, for many things, not least democracy in a country of that sort? So uh, so John us. Uh, in those years, I remember uh, reading everything he wrote, watching him when he appeared on uh, CNN and ABC and CBS and the Newshour and so forth. Uh, this was a major source of trying to understand what was happening in that particular instance. Uh, uh, it continues. Uh, in Algeria, we continue uh, to have this issue, but of course we have it uh, throughout the Muslim uh, world. Uh, so uh, I asked uh, John and Tellis to come here today and uh, give us an update uh, on what the state of things is in Algeria, but also in North Africa more broadly, and within this broader context of what is the relationship between uh, Islam uh, and democracy. Uh, Professor and Tellis
1: thank you very much Bill I appreciate those very kind words and the invitation to come to Ohio State I actually went to college 23 miles northwest of here Ohio Wesley, even though I'm originally from New York thinking that I would never leave New York unless I went somewhere in the Midwest and see what America is actually like and, uh, and I went back to New York where I got a PhD at NYU but my days at Ohio Wesleyan and the, my visits to uh, Ohio State, where Jerry Lucas was a member of the same fraternity that I was, those of you much too young to know who Lucas was. Um, so thank you again, Bill, for the invitation and the opportunity to talk about something that I haven't found for many, many years, even though I began my studies uh, very early on after graduating from Ohio Wesleyan to study Arabic in Egypt and then doing my dissertation in Lebanon. Uh, moving over to North Africa in the early 1970s to do survey work. Uh, But then it was the opportunity when I was a senior Fulbright professor at the University of Algiers for a year in the mid-1970s that I first became uh, exposed in real depth uh, with Algeria and North Africa more generally. Uh, And over the years, uh, sadly, as you well know, the events there have uh, highlighted the region in mostly negative terms. And one of the reasons that I moved from the Middle East to North Africa as part of my research, even though I had studied Arabic for many years, was the preoccupation of the Arab-Israeli dispute on almost all things Middle Eastern, so that it was almost impossible to do any kind of serious scholarly work in the Middle East itself, uh, with the Arab-Israeli issue always dominating that study. And I thought in North Africa, at least, Uh, that would be less of a a factor. And this leads me to uh, my presentation today, uh, which uh, begins with with the understanding, if you've been following events in recent years, the number of North Africans who've been identified as part and parcel of some terrorist activity in North Africa, in Europe, and including the United States, as recently as today's New York Times... Uh, article on Amal Rassam the Algerian who was implicated uh, in the attempt to blow up uh, the Los Angeles International Airport uh, in 2000 uh, when he was coming down from Canada and even the most casual uh, review of the number of North Africans involved for example in the Gerba bombing this is the island off Tunisia where a, uh, a long established synagogue uh, the tourist site for many Europeans was the target of a bomb attack killing a, a number of uh, European tourists. Uh, back in, 19, in 2002, there was the Casablanca bombing in 2003, May 16th. Then in March 11th of 2004, the attack in Spain at the train station, uh, all involving uh, a number of Moroccans, Algerians, and Tunisians. Uh, and one then begins to ask... Uh, What's the connection uh, if, uh, in the common understanding of terrorism in recent days, is associated either with American foreign policy in the Middle East uh, or the Arab-Israeli dispute uh, or issues like that, what does North Africa have to do with any of these uh, these matters in a direct way? Uh, and the more one investigates that relationship, one realizes that this is, in fact, something much deeper, much more indigenous to what is happening within North African states themselves, uh, which is the foundation for my analysis of the relationship of Islam, democracy, and the state, and the degree to which terrorism emerges from that. I argue basically that to the extent that uh, we can understand the emergence of this kind of transnational terrorism uh, with a North African face, uh, that it begins in our understanding of state society relations in North Africa itself. And for my purpose, I define North Africa as Algeria, Morocco, and Tunisia. I mean, you can include Mauritania, you can include Libya, if you're thinking of the Arab Maghreb Union, or the UMA, as it's called, using its French acronym. But looking at those three states in particular, And looking back at their immediate pre-independence and post-independence period, there was nothing that would have led you to believe that these countries would be the uh, source of future terrorist uh, uh, activity. Um, Morocco, for example, uh, became independent in 1956, had hardly been colonized for less than 50 years by the French uh, a monarchy, a, a relatively a, a modern, modest, pro-Western uh, monarchy, was established uh, with Muhammad the, uh, the Fifth as the, as the king, a popular leader. Um, and though there was great conflict over the degree to which his son, King Hassan, Uh, governed uh, autocratically and imprisoned many of uh, his opponents and so on and so forth. The overall view is that Morocco represented a kind of modernizing monarchy somewhat pro-Western of which Islam had been successfully co-opted as part of one of the multiple identities associated with the monarchy. At least that's the image that was projected and the title that he uh, using that of the Prophet Muhammad himself as the commander of the faithful, was supposed to reflect this incorporation of this Islamic component of the monarchical legitimacy established uh, by, uh, by the, by the, the allies. In Algeria, though it was not pro-Western, it, its experience uh, with France and its uh, bloody nearly eight-year war of independence Uh, leading to a kind of, uh, you know, secular, socialist, revolutionary, one-party state, Uh, seemed, you know, the less likely candidate of any of the three countries, Uh, even though Islam had been part of the revolution and Islamic current had always existed. But the understanding at the time, remembering now we're talking about the 50s and the 60s, this is the days of, of secular nationalism, of third worldism, of the Cold War, uh, nowhere in this environment is Islam really a factor other than maybe at, at a personal level or at an institutional official level but you know, the notion of a populist Islam however much it, we now know of course it's historically based has always existed and indeed the secular nationalist phase is the artificial phase is the short term phase the long term the more enduring uh, the more indigenous is of course the Islamic one which is the one I will get back to So that didn't seem like a likely candidate for uh, an Islamist current emerging. uh, Anti-Western, but not anti-modern. Anti-American, but uh, totally socialist. Um, uh, Clearly not democratic, uh, but insistent on creating a bureaucratic authoritarian state uh, in the model of the Soviet system. Tunisia... Under the leadership of a totally pro-Western, pro-French founding father, if you wish, of the country, Habib Bourguiba, uh, was also viewed as, in fact, having begun its modernization uh, back in the 19th century, inspired by its own desire to evolve, not imposed from outside, and that, at least under Bourguiba's vision, Tunisia was evolving towards a bicultural bilingual, equally comfortable with its Arab, Islamic, and French Western identities. And this was someone who was also uh, pro-Western, one of the few back in the 50s, indeed, to advocate making peace with Israel at a time when, of course, Israel was still being considered the occupied territory, Zionist entity, and so on and so forth. Um, Additionally, Buhiba was presented as a modernist, Westernist alternative to Nasserism. Which at the time was viewed as vehemently uh, anti-American, uh, with NASA being labeled the uh, Hitler on the Nile and, and, and things of that kind. Which of course now you look back historically and you, you wish we had NAsas all over the place, you know. But uh, at the time, this was this is, these are the labels that he was, uh, he was being given. Uh, so Bourguiba stood as in, in total opposition to this kind of radical Arab nationalist, uh, pro-Soviet view. Uh, that was trying to meld, you know, and and, and fuse Western and Eastern and Arab and, and European uh, visions of what Tunisia would lo- would look like. So when you look at each of these three countries in the beginning of the 50s, in the 60s, in the 70s, though they were ideologically different, uh, they did share. It appeared a common secular vision based on nationalism, and a kind of evolutionary modernity, Tunisia and Morocco more than Algeria. Where were the Islamists in all of this? Well, Islam in these three countries need to be divided into two very distinctive ways. One hand, of course, was what I would call official Islam. Islam was, from the very beginning, incorporated within the rhetoric and ideology uh, and self-vision of each of these uh, leaderships. As I said, in Morocco, the king was the commander of the faithful. So he wore his religious hat, he wore his political hat, he wore all these at once. In Algeria, Islam was incorporated, co-opted, an official ministry of religious affairs was established, all things dealing with Islam, including the building of mosques, the selection of imams, even the determination of the, the sermons that were going to be read, and so on and so forth, were all centralized within the Algerian state, which itself had been highly centralized after the coup d'etat that took place in 1965, following a, a short period of rule by uh, Ahmed Ben Bella, who was the first president of post-independence Algeria. Uh, And in Tunisia, Habib Bourguiba was determined to be the kind of Atatürk of Tunisia, without constitutionally separating church and state. He went so far indeed to try to uh, alter Islamic rituals and practices, to try to uh, diminish Ramadan, uh, the month of fasting on the basis of we, that the state can't really develop and be productive if people are weak, not having eaten all day, and then, you know, extracted some passages within the Quran to say that the Prophet says, you know, work hard no matter what, uh, and that includes during Ramadan, what have you. That didn't exactly fly. But he, they show you how far he went in attempting to subordinate Islamic practices in the name of some rational uh, modernization. So Islam was, was, you know, marginalized. Uh, and the assumption in all cases was, was that the ideology of the state, the charismatic nature of the leaderships, uh, had essentially succeeded in, in limiting Islam within this official uh, side. Now, of course, in North Africa, uh, as in other parts of the Muslim world, you always had a mystical Islam, which just is really not part of what we're looking at here. Sufism or Maraboutism, Sufism in the Middle East, Maraboutism in North Africa. Uh, so these, you know, on one hand, folk Islam, and the other official Islam, uh, were the ways in which Islam was perceived to be, to identify itself and to be uh, understood. All along, of course, in all three cases, the failure to appreciate the fact that societies themselves had not been converted or convinced about the legitimacy or the applicability or the significance of these so-called secular Western socialist rationalist ideologies that the states were promoting. As long as the economies were doing well, and the case of Algeria is the most outstanding one, where this kind of social contract was agreed upon, this being an extremely uh, wealthy hydrocarbon state, much more gas than oil. And Using the resource of that wealth in the classic rentier state model uh, to keep people relatively satisfied with their welfare needs, and for their part, society being politically apathetic, politically indifferent, politically passive. This is not unique to Algeria, it was a fairly common pattern. Most states didn't have the resources that Algeria had to pull it off. Uh, Algeria also had the mythology of the revolution. Which served as a kind of uh, framework within which this could be justified. The revolution for the people, by the people, all over the post was all over the place to intend to, in case you forgot, uh, what state you were living in, this was the state. Uh, And to which they also enabled you to, uh, to provide you with the resources included. For example, healthcare, education, transportation. Even when I was there in the middle of 1970s and the, the, the socialist contract was beginning to, uh, to waver uh, and to begin to, to eventually fall apart, um, you know, people were very proud of, of Algeria's accomplishment. But I mean, if you go from Morocco, Tunisia, and Algeria, uh, you know, you have an image of the Maghreb as, oh, well. They're, well, they're Arabs, they're, they have a Berber origin, they're close to Europe, they've been colonized by the French, and so on and so forth. But it's such an enormously distinct society, so different people and so forth. So in Algeria in the 1970s, first of all, there were never any beggars, ever, ever, ever. And that would be like insulting to beg, even though there was no food in the, in the suku Uh Never mind, we're proud to have our two bananas and five boxes of cereals, you know, that have expired in the U.S. and been sent over to Algeria because they don't have enough food. Uh, but you go to the Morocco, everybody is begging, and yet there's tons of food, uh, cheap food, available food, and so forth. So I mean, the, the, the contract in Algeria seemed to hold, and even if it was at the expense of freedoms, and the expense of even the kind of uh, choices that the Tunisians are in the uh, at But it was precariously maintained, it was precariously maintained in all three cases. Given Rentiers' economy's vulnerability to market fluctuations of all single crop commodity states, uh, Algeria suffered the most by the 1980s as the price of oil went down. uh, The contract uh, became less, more and more difficult to maintain. And it is in that context that new social movements emerged to fill the gap where the state was no longer able to provide the kind of assistance that it had in the past. And what one has to appreciate is that in the arguments about the emergence and and sustainability and dynamism of all these movements, theoretically, debates tend to be polarized. It's either an economistic explanation or it's a cultural explanation or it's a global explanation and so forth. I would argue that what happened is that there were three simultaneous crises that took place virtually in each of these countries. And it's a combination of these that uh, pushed the state to a position where it ended up where it is today, in an extremely defensive, aggressive, uh, violent mode, trying to suppress what has come to be the most authentic, spontaneous, populist representation of mass desire for freedom and opportunity and justice. Um, and the crises were, one, was, were clearly economic. Uh, these economies are extremely, you know, world-dependent, global-dependent, external-dependent, whether it's oil, whether it's agriculture, whether it's olives, uh, whether it's tourism. Uh, you go, it's classic Americans. But there was another crisis, there was a political crisis. Bourguiba had believed that Bourguibism, which was the counterpart of Nasserism with a pro-Western face, had succeeded in socializing the next generation of Tunisians. They understood that the future was bilingual, bicultural. And my first study that I did in Tunisia back in 1972, under SSRC grant, doing survey work of university students who I assumed would be the most likely incipient elites who would replace the incumbent elites, in the next generation, there would be men, there would be lawyers, and they'd be both going to school in Paris and in Tunis. Uh, my survey of those found uh, these people pro-Islamic, pro-Palestinian, pro-Arab—everything opposite for what the regime and its elites were communicating to the rest of society and the world. So wait a second—I mean, you know, there's a big disconnect here. There's some discontinuous socialization going on that they're not even aware of. They're fooling themselves. Um, so uh, there was a, a political crisis between you know what was being promoted and what increasingly was, was being expressed. And finally, and this is, I think, in many ways the, the, the bond that, that really constitutes the, the, the full explanation, and that is the cultural crisis. Uh, you can't appreciate North Africa... Um, until you see the enormous contrast between European tourism, Westernism, whatever you want, and the way ordinary Algerian, Moroccans, and Tunisians live. Now, Algeria has never been a tourist destination. During this whole of its uh, socialist phase, it promoted what it called tourism inter, internal tourism. Keep the Americans out of here, French, stay out, even though Algeria is one of the most beautiful countries in the world. And if you ever have a chance, you must go. Uh, Chad, one of the great opportunities I had in my life, when when I taught there for the whole year, I actually took my car from New Jersey to France, down to Algiers on a ferry, and then spent the whole year traveling all the way down to Temer and seeing every part of the country. One of the most diverse, beautiful countries in the world. And thankfully, they've had no tourists. So, you know, it's it's beautiful. Uh, Beautiful coast, beautiful mountains, beautiful desert. When you talk about the Sahara, it's Algeria. Um, So that that tourism there hasn't been... But but remember now, Algerians have been in France ever since they were occupied in 1830. A million and a half Algerians in France. Studying, living, marrying, so on and so forth. And over the years, back and forth, back and forth. Uh, So Algeria has long been exposed more than any other Arab country, more than any other third world country, to Europe and its essence. Culture, politics, history. And this is an important aspect to understand because in my argument about political Islam, and its relationship to democracy. The missing link in in so much of the analysis is the degree to which Algerians understood what it was like to operate within a democratic civil society. Because, you know, the argument that's often used by those in power, a kind of paternalistic view, oh, they're still not mature enough, they don't understand democracy, they need time, the kind of Mugabe approach to democratization. Uh, when in fact, like the Algerians, particularly the Moroccans and Tunisians as well, they've long been exposed to, totally familiar with, having been organized within communist labor unions in France, having been in strikes, having been par- members of parties, and so on and so forth. That they didn't have a chance to do it back home doesn't mean that they weren't predisposed to understanding and profiting from that, ex- from that experience. Uh, in any case, the, um, the, 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 the cultural crisis uh, in, in Tunisia and Morocco in particular uh, was the degree to which, you know, European tourism and Western lifestyles were uh, very visible to people that would still remain at, in its essence, conservative, religious, traditional, family-oriented, independent of whether they wore ties, spoke perfect French, had PhDs, or were wearing jalabas, illiterate, speaking Berber, living up in Tizi Um... When those crises emerged and and fused, you had uh, the the emergence of what I would call, you know, not only a a uh, counter-state, but more importantly, a counter-society, as reflected in political Islam. Now, the political Islam is different from the official Islam and the mystical Islam. Political Islam comes under the category of what many have written about called Islamic Activism. Islamic activism can be subdivided into three major categories. One, I call many others, you know, labeling has been difficult because there's all these pejorative associations. I call political Islam. A political Islam, for me and others who use this term, a movement who have Islam as their point of reference in a very broad way, but who first believe in achieving political power, through democratic, non-violent means. They are seeking to achieve, to to gain control of the state through legal means. In other words, like any other political party within a democratic system. They accept the legitimacy of the state. They don't seek to uh, alter the state, destroy the state, or create even an Islamic state. Now we can get into some discussion about, you know, what's well, Islamic about this if they say, well, in, a way, in ways it's, Islam is, is, the, is the rhetoric, it's the ideology, is the frame of reference, but the, but the essence is the politics. So that's political Islam. Uh, examples Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, the party in power in Turkey, Justice and Development Party in Morocco. I would say FIS in, in Algeria is illegal, and Nahda in Tunisia illegal. But those are the kind of parties whose main purpose was to organize politically, to achieve national power, to promote certain policies. The way any political party seeks to achieve power to promote certain policies. That's one, first category of Islamic activism. Second category, of course, are missionary, missionary Islam. Tubbination movements, you know, from, that began in the 1920s in India, those are highly moral, personal, religious conversion, in fact. Not, not converting non Muslims to, to Islam, but making bad Muslims into good Muslims, indifferent Muslims into activist Muslims. They were religious Muslims into religious ones. And in fact, in the Times today, there's an article about a very uh, expansive tablighi movement in France. Unfortunately, the, the, the author uh, makes the mistake of equating, both directly and in- indirectly, that missionary Islam is is the source of fundamentalism, which I mean jihadism. When the determination of somebody going from missionary Islam to jihadist Islam is more of a function within the context in which they operate. But if they're operating within a dictatorial, authoritarian, despotic political framework, as I say they are existing in North Africa, then the possibility from from even from political Islam to a missionary Islam to a a jihadist Islam is quite possible. But it's not missionary Islam or tablighi Islam that, that gets you to be a radical or a terrorist. It's the conditions under which you find yourself in the reaction of the state towards you. Anyway, that's the argument I make, and others make as well, and we can debate specifically. Uh, the other the component of missionary Islam, of course, is Salafist. And you, maybe you are, you're not familiar with it, we, don't, you know, we can get into detail later. And Salafia, you know, the Salafia movement in the past was really quite, uh, not, not benign. Benign seems is too, uh, is too negative, actually. But sort of, if you think about al-Afghani and Abdu, uh, this is highly reformist. You know, how do we integrate Islam with the modern world? At a time when, when of course, Muslims are living within a Muslim-majority civilization, that is, the Ottoman Empire. So it made sense that Afghani and Abdu are promoting reform when Muslims are living under an Islamic government, but they are increasingly losing ground to the West. It's obvious militarily, scientifically, educationally, so they said, we've got to do something. Reform is the answer. And those writings are still quoted, not not in the Islamic world the way they used to be. Only later, after the Ottoman Empire collapses after World War One, when now Muslims are under the control of non-Muslims, that the student of uh, of Abdul Rashid Rida begins to they go from reform to resistance, and the invocation of the reintroduction of the Caliphate. So the Salafian movement takes a dramatic shift from having been essentially a movement of reform adaptation, keep the Islamic essence but integrate the Western mm-hmm. benefits to one in which you now have to resist because you're being occupied by uh, a, a non-Muslim. I and mean, in, in many ways, if you think of Hassan al-Banna as the founder of the Muslim Brotherhood and uh, Sayyid al uh as in many ways the two, the two versions, even though they, within mm-hmm. Banna there's a militant, radical version, but by comparison to qutb al-Banna is starting to look good. Maybe I'm getting much too specific here. But anyway, uh, the point I want to make is this, there's a second, this is the second version of Islamic activism. The third version is the jihadist version of Islamic activism. And within that, there are three subcategories. One is sort of internal jihadism, which is, you know, get rid of the infidel infidel, that's a Muslim, a regime, such as Mubarak in Egypt, Ben Ali in Tunisia, Bouteflika in Algeria, the whole the, the gang of all these so-called Muslim leaders that these jihadists believe are uh, traitors that are uh, you know, uh, the Jahiliya movement is, 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 is re-emerging because of these guys, because there really are, are uh, bad Muslims that are exploiting Islam to essentially promote secular Western ways. Then there's the irredentist jihadist, Chechnya, Palestine, in many ways, probably the most outstanding example. Um, Hamas would be a kind of, uh, I think, an illustration of that. Uh, uh, Kashmir, I think would be another example. Maybe you could think of examples in Indonesia. And finally, of course, there's the global jihad, uh, al-Qaeda. Uh, not clear about what the goal is, but violence is clearly associated. And in, in, all, in any case, the jihadists, all three of its subcategories are engaged in violent overthrow of existing regimes, and in the case of global, you know, the world order. In the case of North Africa, in the period beginning in the 1980s, it was political Islam that emerged. There were no jihadists. Yes, there were missionary Islam, but it was a very progressive type in Algeria and Morocco. Again, separate from the official Islam, separate from uh, messianic Islam. Uh, And these movements were of local origin. They responded to these multiple crises I talked about. And they had the support of many, if not most, of uh, the people in the countries in which they operate. Let me give you three examples, quickly. Tell me one. I've totally lost sense of time. Um, in Tunisia, for example, the movement that emerged It was called the Islamic Tendency Movement, using the French acronym. That's the weird things about everything in, in, in North Africa. You know, Arab Movement in French acronyms, you know. Uh, but, so it's MTI, Mouvement de Tendance Islamique, blah, blah, blah. And uh, but that so that was uh, that was in Tunisia headed by Rashid uh, Rahnoussi, Ranushi, uh, who who is in self self-imposed exile in, in London. Name was changed to Ennahda because you couldn't have Islam in the name of the party to be uh, legalized. Uh, they don't come any more moderate, any more democratic, any more authentic, any more representative of a people than Ennahda in Tunisia. I mean Ben Ali is pathetic. I mean, the man represents no one but himself. Uh, this movement represents, I can't say the majority. They've never had a chance to be legalized and to participate in elections, but I can guarantee you that we'd get the plurality of the votes, if not the majority. In Algeria, it was the Islamic Salvation Front. French acronym, FIS. And they plays that played were you know, against French with acronyms, and so they say the FIS of the FLN. This was supposed to be the, the son of the FLN, because it really wasn't genuinely Islamic. It was just another version of the nationalist movement that hadn't succeeded, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, this was also, I would consider, and again, this is a, I was there doing work uh, uh, following the, the, the riots of 1988. October 1988, called the events in Algeria, was the, the, the physical manifestation of the confluence of these three crises. And with thousands and thousands of Algerians went to the streets, began to attack all symbols of the state because the, the, the contract had collapsed. And the army had to be called in and they had to kill their own people. Now these, this is the army that's mythologized as having defeated the French. Those of you who see Battle of Algiers now, because that's back in again for a whole bunch of other reasons, but in any case, uh, to see that army attacking and killing its own people, which is absolutely traumatic, and force the military to to pull back. Um, So when I went to study what was happening to Algeria as a consequence of that, and there was a quick, rapid change, amending the constitution, uh, legitimization of political parties, 60 political parties, and the one that emerged the most effective, the largest, the most popular was the FIS, Islamic Salvation Front. Which is a front of organization of a number of different political tendencies, some jihadist, to be fair, and others very moderate. Uh, and they were allowed to participate in local elections; they did overwhelmingly well. Next stage of national elections, when they were in again, clearly uh, you'd get a majority. In the military stage, a classic 50s-style Latin American-type coup, and shut the whole project down, resulting in the. In ten more years of deadly violence that some have estimated as high as 200,000 people have been, have been killed. In Morocco, the king had always believed, especially Hassan, that his religious hat was, su- was sufficient to keep all those of Islamic you know, orientation, a political kind, uh, uh, you know, under control. Well, that wasn't the case. And the movement under Abdeslam Yassin, the uh, Justice and Welfare movement, for example, who long ago attacked the king for being immoral, uh, which he was, for being, you know, corrupt, which he was. Uh, all the things that all the Moroccans knew about, but he said it. And, of course, the king, you know, came down hard on to He published. A number of his books are available. They're not translated into English. Uh, his movement has never been legalized. He was under house arrest for many years. He's sick. His daughter now is essentially his, his representative. Um... If that movement was ever given a chance to participate, it would clearly defeat any and all other such movements, including the Justice and Development Party that has been organized by the government and now is appearing to, you know, to, to uh, serve as a kind of expression of populist Islam that is not controlled by the state, but we all know that it is. So, here you had the three types of political Islam emerging in North Africa to represent for the first time the popular will at a time when these multiple crises were, take, were taking place. At first hand, I mean, when you think about it, what everything that was going on in Europe and was to take place after the fall of the Berlin Wall and the collapse of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War and the transition to democracy throughout the world, that Algeria, in fact, like its revolutionary experience, we forget, I mean, you know, this was 1954. So this is among the first of the major third world revolutionary movements that was held up as a model for the rest of the world. Third world seeking its national liberation. So too, we weren't looking, and we weren't looking for a particular reason, uh, Algeria in the 1980s was emerging and was going to be, if permitted, I believe, and still believe, to have been the first Arab Islamic country to have transitioned to democracy peacefully. I mean, this is like, now it's on the agenda. Now everyone's talking about it and so on so It still isn't going to happen because, because they're not willing to allow, I would argue, allow these kind of movements to emerge uh, to the top. Uh, believing that uh, their motives are suspect, believing that uh, they're talking on both sides of their mouth, believing that they're simply going to substitute secular authoritarianism for religious authoritarianism, and so on and so forth. But one of the, one of the advantages I had in studying for one year uh, the feasts in Algeria in the period from 19, June 1990 when they got elected uh, to the following June was to see, in fact, how does an Islamic party in power govern on a practical day-to-day basis uh, as opposed to the uh, fears and, and, and anxieties associated with Islam coming to power, albeit at a local and gubernatorial level, and that experience convinced me uh, that they were ultimate politicians. And what do politicians do? They adapt to the local situation. All politics is local. These guys know how to do it. And Algeria, if you know anything about Algeria, is as I said, normally it's a diverse country. And that means, regionally means politically as well. And when FIS was in power, you could see the different ways in which they applied their policies. Tipaza, a very popular resort area on the beach in uh, in the west part of the country, uh, where tourism is important, where you know going to the beach is important, where the women wore bikinis, where beers were sold. It's hot, you need a cold beer. Uh, FIS which had the total control of the municipality, left everything in place. So you went there, you swam in your bikini, you had your cold beer, and you went home, and the feast was in power. Constantine, on the other hand, large, third largest city, uh, in the east of the country, very religious, very conservative, didn't have to do anything. They were already wearing the veil. There was no alcohol at the cafes. So there looked like, to me, a very good adaptation of the political situation as they found it and uh, justified uh, the, the way, I mean, justified, it seems to me at least, uh, justified the governing style. In any case, these three movements... Once they've reached a point, especially in the case of Algeria, where they were about to take over, the state, in, in each in each instance, came back in a way uh, that I would now call, others have called as well, as sort of the, the robust authoritarianism that has re-emerged and constitutes, it seems to me, the phenomenon that we need to look at much more closely uh, and that we're sort of forgetting about. Whether it's Mubarak's style of trying to stay in power, whether it's Ben Ali's total crass form of authoritarianism, or whether it's uh, Mohammed VI's more adaptive style, you know, give a little, take a little. At the end of the day, the state remains in control of society's wishes and is determined to uh, prevent any of these, what I consider democratic, political, Islamic movements from emerging and from eventually coming to power and therefore giving an opportunity to people to uh, uh, have those that they select and they elect represent them.
0: And then to allow that
1: process to work its natural uh, way into what was most likely to happen, some kind of alternation of power. Uh, They will confront problems they can't solve. They will meet the test, in some cases fail the test in other cases, and uh, my own sense would be that other parties would emerge and they may uh, defeat those in power, they may form alliances. In other words, politics as usual would then be established. But until you allow this precedent-setting opportunity to take place that can only find expression in a political Islam, I would argue you have no chance of any kind of viable, sustainable democracy in the Arab world. Now, you might say, well, you're limiting this experience in North Africa. Does it apply to the Middle East? What about Iraq? How about invasion as a source of democracy? Well, don't go. That, I mean, we can talk about that, but obviously, I don't, I don't buy that at all. But maybe, maybe, Bill, it's a good time to stop and and to take some questions and, and answer uh, any questions
2: you may have. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I heard you mention uh, uh, justice and development yeah.
1: parties in is Tunisia and Morocco. No, uh, just Morocco. Tunisia okay. does not allow a single Islamic party to, to organize. Uh, is, it, is it purely Good point. Uh, I don't, well, it, it underwent a name change. I forget the official, the original name of it. Uh, but I, to be honest with you, I'm not sure. The, the I mean, it does sound a bit suspect. Uh, but there is, a, there is an, a Nahda party in Algeria that serves. There are, there are three so called legitimate Islamic parties in Algeria today that the government has allowed as part of the process of you know, co optation. One is called a Nahda, which would be the same name as the one in Tunisia. Uh, the other is called Movement for Peaceful Society. And then there's an offshoot of Nahda Al-Islah uh, uh, headed by Jaballa, who is a, is a popular figure. Uh, but feast remains illegal. Yes, sir. Uh,
2: yes, among uh, Muslim activists, you mentioned some names like Sajamad al-Dilin al-Fanim, Muhammad al-Fanim, Salamad al-Barnar, Garavdad, Among the living... Thinkers, uh, anyone that who can cross the boundaries and are popular in some other non-African country.
1: Yeah, of You mentioned Renucci who's alive. Right. But whether they have a popular support in some other outside their country. Good point. Good point. Uh, not that I know of. I mean, uh, Renucci is writing because Renucci Israel is real as a philosopher. Uh, I, I mean, he's a quite interesting man. As you know, none of these none, none of these individuals are, are religious individuals. They're not clerics. They have, have no religious qualification per se. Um, Madani, for example, has got a Ph.D. from the University of London in education. Uh, Belhaj is. Uh, these are the leaders of the feast. Uh, is you know, high school teacher. Uh, Ranushi, I think Ranushi, of all of them. Yasin has seen it, written extensively. It's not particularly deep. It's very provocative. Uh, very political. Uh, he, and he's read by, but I'm not too sure to what extent he influences to Ravi, when he was an influence because his writings were quite sophisticated and was a popular leader at a time when you know he was in power in Sudan um, and I know Ranushi is read by, uh, by intellectuals but at the level of political mobilization I think their influence was really local quite local and to this day they remain popular figures they haven't been eliminated. I mean, Yassin is, is, is old and sick. Uh, Madani is just old. Uh, Belhaj is young and, well, getting older. Um, and Ranushi you know, sits in London. So I think their overall influence is first limited and to their own countries. And uh, none, except for maybe for Ranushi, has the intellectual weight to serve a kind of Maldudi, Kotub, Banna or Al-Franier, or any of the others. That, that, none of the, I, I, it's from my perspective, to be honest with you. Yes, ma'am.
2: Um, you mentioned political uh, women working that desire just to be politics, um, and when they turn to this is a function of the state, and right. they live in. Right. But, given that Islam is also, both a religion and a political force, that not only governs the private, private realm, but also the public realm, so, a. What would prevent them from seeking to establish an Islamic state they're mm-hmm. their power? Sure. And b. Um, there are also people, say in Algeria, who are mm-hmm. and who maybe are only supporting the Islamic movements because of their bitter with the state. Sure. sure absolutely. So, what would guarantee these sure. people who are who have very much adopted modernity into their lives sure. uh, from living an Islamic state?
1: Sure. Absolutely. Very good question. And that was one of the questions, for example, that I asked at one of the receptions that I attended following the victory of the feast in the first round of the elections back in, uh, not the first round, but the local elections, municipal elections in in June of 1990. And it was a a party that was being held up in Hijri, Hijri, which is sort of one of the Shishi neighborhoods up in the hills in Algiers. And uh, in attendance were these, uh, if you know anything about Algeria, is again, very, very diverse, very modern. Three very Western francophone professional women dressed in Western clothing, a doctor, a lawyer, a teacher, you know, the, the kind of people who would be, you know, scared to death of anything Islamic uh, in power. And they had all voted for peace. He said, this is interesting, you know. Uh, and of course, as you said... Sick of corruption, sick of the manipulation, sick of the of the lies, sick of uh, no alternation, da da da. That was the negative side. The other side, these guys look honest. In my opinion, these people lived in very modest ways, ahead of the feast and so forth. So on one hand, it was, and believe it or not, for them Islam was not forced daily. It was, and this is with their own words, integrity. It was finally bringing integrity to a political process. Now, you might say, well, isn't this naive? That we're but but if, you, if you think about it, in all these systems, you've been living under a single authoritarian system that has imposed a unitary ideology that had, you've had no part in determining at all. It's come from the top, it's been imposed, it's made to appear to be beneficial and popular and so on. Whether it's Bourgeoisism, whether it's revolutionary socialism, or whether it's evolutionary or monarchical modernism. They felt that these people uh, were, the feast, was representing something that hadn't yet been represented. So they, and because they were liberal-minded people, they wanted to give the other side an, an advantage. Now, when the parliamentary elections took place a year later, they didn't vote at all. The so you know that was a, so they made a point they, they, they made a point so they, so you've, you've, you voted for fees for a whole bunch of reasons you hated the FLN, you were sick and tired, you wanted change, you wanted honesty, you wanted integrity um, so that explains the one part of it now the other part about guarantees what a party that gets into power democratically does or does not do that's what democracy is about it's the institutionalization of uncertainty to quote our friend. Jaworski, if he's a friend, I mean, uh, I, like, I like Jaworski. There's two places of uncertainty. Now, when I find, and when I get this question, I always respond by saying, I don't recall anyone ever posing that same question when Poland, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, Bulgaria, Romania, all of which have had zilch experience of democracy or a mini second over a long time. And who, in cases like Poland, deeply influenced by an authoritarian Catholic Church, it's not nothing against I'm at a Jesuit university, I can say these things. <laughs> uh, why were those questions? How did you know Lech Walesa was going to be this great Democrat? I mean, uh, what guarantees? I mean, the, the bar was, was so low, as long as they weren't communists, we'll accept anything. These guys are just saying, we want to just vote our people in. We, we
2: don't no, know, they
1: might want to impose it, uh, you know. Uh, an Islamic state, you know. But it seems to me that if if you're willing to give the benefit of the doubt for most experiences where they've had no, either no experience at all with democracy or very limited, there should be no reason why you shouldn't do the same for an Arab-Islamic country. Unless you see that you are so, not you, but, you know, the very idea of, of Islam being in power is, is, is just congenitally unacceptable. Well, that's always going to, be, going to be the case. You know, that, that's fine. That's what democracy is supposed to be all about. I mean, you know, I'm not happy with Bush. I have no. But do I say get rid of this democracy? No. I'm just waiting for the next election, or the election after that, or have every elections. That's what you're supposed to do. So you let them in power, let them run. If they run badly, you vote them out. But you can't, in advance of that, use that as justification for them to never come in, which guarantees you'll never have democracy. And as long as you're talking about political Islamic movements being the most popular movement, can you imagine any alternative to that? There ain't any liberal Democrats in this part of the world. There are all five of them, and three of them are in Europe. I mean, they're just... They're not there. So if you're trying to get a modern, liberal, secular, democratic party to get the majority of votes in these countries, you'll wait forever. That's not going to happen. So you, you, you go with what you're supposed to go with. The voice of the people. And if these guys articulate... As I said, a political message that is uh, legal, nonviolent, institutional, f- plays by the rules of the game, you should encourage it. Go for it. Absolutely. Get yourself in a position of power, accept the responsibilities, and then good luck. Because you know the problems are going to disseminate. Anyway. I think Turkey is, a, is such a wonderful illustration of what can be. What can be? Now, people say, ah, oh, it's the European Union, the influence, we don't have that, and so on and so on. Well, that's a, there's always going to be some explanation. I don't know if I've answered your question, but anyway. Mm-hmm. Yes, sir? Some of the accounts that
2: I've heard, yeah. you know, some of the topics that you've been addressing today, have influenced and stressed more the influence of Egypt in sort of is an antithesis in some ways is reaction because it's so close and so large. Right. Is that, Do you see that as, as just Egyptians writing the same thing? Do you actually see yeah. that yeah. being more still over or more relaxed?
1: Which, which part of the influence? you mean the Islamic influence? So yeah, the thing uh,
2: is that if you, start, if you did talk about Yes. relation to Nasserism. Yes. Uh, yes. right, sure. I've heard others saying that a lot of the things that happen to use Mubarak as sort of the the uh, the foil or the figure Mm -hmm. of either (laughs) what we want to do or what we don't want to do so in some sense you can't separate out the experience and the transition over the past number of decades in Egypt mm-hmm. from the other three the North African neighbors. That's the
1: argument that's been to you? Well, does I mean, clearly at the level of ideas, uh, the largest Arab country, and, and so on and so forth. But I wouldn't want to exaggerate that. I mean, it te- there has been a tendency to try to transnationalize these uh, movements, and I, uh, in, uh, in North Africa, which I think are really need to be understood on their own terms first and foremost. Because when you do that, then then it makes then you can answer the question that you asked, you see. But if you intend to, tend to believe well, this is part of a broader global conspiracy or, you know, and that, that you're saying that, but I'm saying that once you've, then, then, you, then I think one misreads the situation. But at a level of ideas, of course, I mean, Kutub's ideas, I mean, yeah. there, there is that, you know, there's, there's several wings of the Salafist movement, and one of them is a Kutubist wing, as you know. And that's pretty militant. I mean, if you read it, you've read any of Kutub's stuff, I mean, you know, he did live in Brooklyn, and maybe that's why he got so radicalized. But, uh, yeah, now we know why. I mean, God, he came back furious, you know, I don't mean, know what happened. I mean, this is before they had no smoking, and they closed down the sex shops, if he'd come now he'd be, he'd be in heaven you know um, anyway uh, there, there is uh, there is the, Egypt has historically and of course Nasserism was extremely influential but you know after after the six day war and then his death and so forth uh, but I think a more important point is the realization that in many ways the secular nationalist socialist phase of Arab political expression what, that was the that was the artificial that was the temporary that was the elitist and 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 if we can begin to accept the political Islam as the more populous mass, at least theoretically we shouldn't have any problems with it in in the construct of trying to understand political change. But I would go beyond that and say that this is an opportunity to link a natural, national uh, political orientation to a political form that will benefit them and us. Which brings me back to the terrorist question which may appear a bit simplistic, but I've always felt that to the degree to which such authentic authentic, political expression is permitted in these countries, the less likely you're going to have these dudes going on every which way uh, without trying to generalize. We know each case is, is somewhat different. Uh, so I, I, that would be the way I would answer it. Yes, sir. Yeah. Um, I guess just listening to you talk, it
2: seems that it would be eminently rational to move toward incorporation. For Islam, and so it sets up a puzzle of what is really the source of the fear by these states right. of Islamists. There aren't a lot of cases of Islamic social movements taking over and creating Islamic right. states. These leaders are themselves right. Muslims. That's right. Turkey is a model. Um, so is it something about Islam that these leaders are afraid of, or is it just coincidental that they want to remain in power? And Islamists happen to be the ones who are challenging, and so they're trying to repress
1: it? Yeah. Why the fear? Well, uh, and that's why I think the concentration increasingly should, should shift towards the robust authoritarianism that seems to be manifest itself in the state. And there is an increasing interest about the mechanisms that the state increasingly, especially the Arab state, we're all familiar with the Muhabbarat. Been tons of stuff written on it. But increasingly over the years, when you would think, as experiences elsewhere has shown, as, the, the, as these challenges have, have increased, the states have, sooner or later, have had to modify, alter, ultimately be transformed into democratic ones. And these have not. Uh, and of course, they're fearful of Islam because this is genuine representation of the masses that ne- they've never had before. I mean, this is, they, they realize that this is something that's way beyond their capacity. But on the other hand, uh, they've gained a number of significant advantages that were not there in the past. Among them is the war on terrorism. Uh, Secondly is America's deep, deep military intelligence and arms involvement with these countries that had not been there in the past. I've done a statistical survey looking over things that might not seem all grow that much. The IMET, uh, which is the military aid that we give to countries, uh, North Africa has historically been, you know, low, low down, very low. The Algeria was always pro-Soviet and Tunisia was small and how much of an army and, and Morocco was, was, couldn't afford it. So our aid was, was quite small. You should see the figure, the way this has been transformed. I mean, again, if you... Algeria, not that long ago, was pro-Soviet, revolutionary, socialist, you know, know, one-party state. Uh, We now have, we are now, we, the United States Army, has troops working with the Algerians deep in the Sahara. Fighting the war on terrorism, we give them an incredible amount of military aid. Our IMF from 2002 was 30,000, which is nothing, of course. In 2003, only a year later, it's 600,000. That's still not much in terms, but the percentage increase I don't know what it is in 2005. So what's happening is, I think the state is using these resources not really to fight terrorism, but to re, to reinforce itself. Thirdly, they've always had this advantage of being rentier states. So you can imagine what 60 dollars a barrel is doomed for the Algerian army ain't going to the people you could be sure of that you know when the 200,000 people were getting killed you know where they weren't getting killed you know where there wasn't a single person being killed it was where oil and gas was being produced nobody was being killed but if you were a poor little villager up in the cabille with no oil you were a dead duck because the military was sure was not going to come to this party so we've seen clearly where the military industrial complex when it needs to puts its effort and it's succeeding Tunisia, for practical purposes, for many, many years was like the Costa Rica of North Africa. I had an army, but you know, it couldn't. Well, why fight Libya? It's got tons of tanks, North Korean pilots, Cuban pilots, Algeria on the other side. So, you know, forget about it. Now, uh, this is a significant military force, and we're providing assistance and so forth. So, I would argue that the ongoing Arab Israeli conflict, of course, is always given ideological ammunition when, when that becomes necessary. The increased military assistance that the United States is giving and the intelligence information and other security-related uh, assistance uh, related to the war on terrorism has empowered the Army. Uh, the rentier character of these states tends to give them a chance to always focus where they need to, ultimately, which is the, the, the military. So even when there are fiscal deficits, you know it's the Army is not going to be the last one to suffer. You know, they'll take over the welfare needs and so on and so forth. Uh, and the, 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 I would finally argue the patrimonial character of the Army itself the networking that exists that reinforces each other makes it a pretty difficult uh, instrument to overthrow. And they realize that the Islamist orientation is the one that can do it. And so far, they've been successful. The state has. And I have not yet to see any of these Arab states collapse in the face of this democratic demand. We'll wait and see. question? Yes, sir. Yeah, I just want to clarify uh, on Algeria. Are you
2: saying that essentially that if peace had won in 1991, that they would maintain democracy, allowing themselves to be voted out of office unlike their counterparts, uh, which is often analogous to the popular Khomeini regime in Algeria, or the once popular Taliban regime in Afghanistan. Right. In
1: Algeria? Well, because Algeria would would have been the first ever popularly, democratically, non-violently elected Islamist party. Right. First that's always used that's always used I love to hear that always used and I say it's the exception that proves the rule forget about it uh, that's always used but that assumes you see that assumes that these again you see I mean uh, what's what's ironical in all of this despite over a decade of violence and 200,000 people being killed people are still not convinced I mean what else does it take that could it have been much worse if he said one especially since they had won democratically, you think it would have been worse. I can't imagine. No, I can't. No, I, I can't imagine. I mean, you think, no matter what hypothetical perspective you may have taken, at a time when, admittedly, you know, there's hindsight now... At the time, things were nervous, but even, you know, as you said, Bill, and I was on McNeil there at the time, I said, let these guys go, I talked to them, they're, they're, they're secular, they're, they're, well, they were secularists, I mean, they weren't really religious, but, but, you know, we were thinking of Iran, we were thinking of uh, Islam as a monolithic challenge to everything Western, so it was hard at the time to be a little more subtle and sophisticated and nuanced about what this in fact was about. Uh, we sort of come there, but not to the point where still, we in North Africa, the United States, are supporting these regimes. And part of our support includes the incorporation, selective incorporation of so-called Islamic parties that are essentially controlled by the state. So that's our way of saying, you see, you support this effort. This is good. Keep, Keep up that good work. Whereas these other parties remain illegal. Yeah, so just to answer your question, if they had been allowed to stay, they would have, I think, and they would have, you know, most likely would have been uh, voted out at some point or been some coalition. Because Algeria is a tough nugget to govern. You don't want to govern Algeria. I mean, that is really a place that. They would have allowed themselves to vote. Uh, I see no reason. There was nothing in their history, even though they had all kinds of tendencies as a front, it wasn't a party. But, you know, to the extent that they were successful politically, via electoral means, it weakened the basis of the militants. The militants could make no case, could not mobilize support, because these guys were winning victories. The minute these guys were defeated, the militants had a field day, because they re-emerged. They had been back, they were organized back in the middle of the 80s. It was only MIA, it was the Armed Islamic Movement. And the state had come in, headed by this guy, Borali. Ali. They went after him, they killed him, and they thought it was all over. But it was always there, because, you know, there was this... this as we now know I and mean, this Islamic current has always been there. It's a secular current that's all new and, and we 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 need to explain.
2: John yes, yeah, your your story stops Where? almost fifteen years ago. Mm-hmm. You know, at the time I remember as in the government meeting with Russia <coughs> trying to persuade right. people to go to Kenushi and, right. and Madani. We saw then Belhaj, it was sort of more radical right. than Madani. But now, fifteen years later. I mean, I see GIA. I'm not sure Belhaj or Madani could do anything in Algeria. You, you seem to imply that political Islam could still yep. win. Yep. And I wonder if that's true. There's 15 years of history now that you've been describing here. Yeah. If I were an Islamist, convinced me that only jihadism is going to work. Yeah. Okay. So democracy is just a process. Okay. good State Department
1: (laughs) Uh, GIA first of all has just been eliminated for all practical purposes Uh, I mean every time there's a new leader they get him and they kill him and that's the end of that the GSPC is sort of the the current terror which is this uh, again French acronyms the Salafist uh, the movement for preaching and combat which was involved a couple of years ago with the kidnapping of European tourists out in the Sahara uh, for which they got $32 million and then enabled them to continue going forward um no, uh, the most the jihadist version is is a is a, a very minor and I mean most Algerians are not jihadists. I understand
2: that, but yeah. why would you yeah. why would Algerians still believe today that a democratic alternative is possible? Well uh, I don't know if they, they believe in that I mean back a political Islamist movement as you call it, rather than see it as Iranians often see the Mossadegh period as one of naive optimism uh, and and voting in essentially an ineffective state that's unable to protect the country from external intervention and to retain its own power. So not that they would disagree with them, they would just see them as too weak to actually sustain the state.
1: Well, there's nothing that's happened in the 15-year period, including the current government, that has given confidence in Algeria is that this is the acceptable alternative. In other words, how did Bouteflika come to power? Who's behind Bouteflika? Uh, what's the status of Algerian politics, society, and economy? I mean, people are l- leading miserable lives. People want to exit. When Chirac came to Algeria, do you recall what they were shouting to him? Visas, visas, visas. He thought they were saying, oh, Jacques, Jacques, Jacques. They're saying, you know, get us out of here. Get us out of here. No, I mean, the situation is horrendous. And, and at $60 a barrel, they're thinking, where is that money? I don't see this. I'm still waiting for my housing. I still can't get transportation. I get the food are out of sight and so on and so forth. So the, the, the implied in your question is a sense that there's a, really a valid, viable alternative, you know, and, and the Islamic one is, God, why would I look at that And there's this? There's total failure. This is total you know, failure. Yeah. I am suggesting that
2: there isn't a viable alternative that the political Islam, which was viable 15 years ago, strongly supportive of that, would now, I mean, we've had 15 years where the state has been empowered and crushing it. Robust authoritarianism. I know. No, I
1: I, I don't disagree with that. That's the part I, I, I so agree So why
2: would a political movement that can't counter robust authoritarianism with something robust have any likelihood of winning mass support well I mean that's,
1: that would be the case you would have said that uh, not many months ago about Ukraine you would have said that about Georgia uh, all these after the fact seem totally normal like, gee, Ukraine, I mean, I, wasn't that long ago when I was looking at Ukraine and the, and the Arab world I said, gee, these are so similar, authoritarian state, the old you know, KGB, God, they're never going to get out, they're poor, the Russians are right there, you know, you named it the character, they were the last thing you would thought that would have been... Uh, the assumption is that uh, if there's a popular will, there's a popular demand, there's a, there's, a, there's a need for transition, the question then just becomes what are the particular circumstances that will lead to it? And we know historically, as much as political scientists would like to rationalize this whole process and give it a systematic character so that we can never predict it, we have no way of predicting it. We have no absolute way, in any way, shape, or form, to identify the particular causal factors that will allow why in this condition will the Muhabharat state succeed in another... Will fail. I don't know. The moon is out, or something. Then you know something. But it, but it ends up being like that. So uh, the more important analytical part is: to what extent are you describing a, a real social movement? To what extent are you describing something that has roots within society, represents popular will, has a historical connection, as a that that's the, that's the key long-term institutional character. In that sense, it seems to me, political Islam is still a viable, meaningful, representative orientation that people identify with. Now. The question is, will it succeed? I don't know.
2: I don't know. Yes, sir. Yeah. Um, I haven't picked up my political economy of North Africa in quite some time, but my general impression is that these states are often marked by uh, extreme imbalances of, of wealth. Um, how would the uh, Islamic political movements uh, address this kind of problem at uh, all, or is it even important,
1: no, I think it is important. Though uh, all three parties have have consistently been accused of lacking in specificity on the economic side. That is, what kind of economic plan would you introduce to get us out of what, in many ways, is an economic and social problem? And the feast, for example, its platform back in the in the in the 90s was quite vague. On the other hand, you know, you're supposed to be vague if you're out of power. You know, read my lips or whatever vague nonsense. Uh, no one ever is and the more concrete you are, the less likely you are to, to win. Remember Mondale's famous state, you know, a statement about uh, I'll, I'll tax you, uh, what if that phrase, you know, that he, and of course you know, he lost the election. So on one hand, it makes political sense, not to be too specific when you're out of power economically. Secondly, from your political economy experience, you know that these are, have, these are rather limited economies. That is, they're one crop economies more or less, you know, tourism, oil, olives, and so forth. Uh, So they're really at the mercy of international market forces, and there's not much they can do. And And I suspect an Islamic government would not be that much different in economic policy than those in power. The difference, however, the difference here is the degree to which people would have faith in the government, which would do a number of things. One, reduce the underground economy. Would bring the economy to the surface, which could be then taxed. And with that taxing power maybe begin to diversify the economy? I mean, in that sense, you have fairly straightforward mainstream economic explanations. Remember, these are so corrupt, they are so imbalanced, they are so multi tiered. You know, there's the official economy, there's the semi official, there's the underground, there's the subterranean, there's the external. I mean, they're all. And at this point, they all need to work simultaneously for the system to work at all. And the government is more than happy to allow the underground economy to continue because they benefit from it. In fact, it couldn't exist without the government allowing it. So the Islamists, to the extent that they could you know, alter that in the name of principles and honesty and integrity and so on, uh, that could have a transforming effect over time. But in short terms, in a kind of macroeconomic sense, I, I don't think there would be that much uh, of, of a shift, uh, especially in a country like Algeria that has to sell its oil and, and gas. Yes, sir. Thank you. Uh, it
2: reminds me of 1953 in Iran. and The people that were involved in, in, in when Musadik nationalized the oil and then he was considered to be a communist. So right. The people that who have helped strengthen the army in the Shah of Iran, Regretted. And many of them have written sure. that we should not have done something like That's this. Right. It's probably around the democracy right now. That's right. That's it's right. too early now that the people are thinking about Algeria, that Algeria, uh, it is a 90s, as some
1: of the people would uh, say Well, uh, actually not. The thinking is more along these lines that um, uh, I, I don't get a sense that people reflect back and, and wish, in fact, that that had taken place. I think in part because we're, we're, you know, September 11th hasn't helped. Uh, Islam has become even more of a kind of dangerous, monolithic, fearsome thing. Uh, you have to explain it even in more complexity. Uh, I think it's becoming more difficult to try to convey the notion uh, that I've been conveying about this experience in Algeria at a particular mo- moment in time. Uh, but, you know, I think that uh, it's still possible. The support is still there. The conditions that led to the emergence of of Islam have not changed. If anything, they've gotten worse and given more meaning to that. Um, and uh, we saw that they could, once given a chance, can organize nationally and, and govern. Uh, So all of those conditions exist. And and to be honest with you, if we are serious about a democratic alternative to the existing Arab authoritarianism that prevails, we've got to get serious about the notion that there is no valid or viable secular, liberal, Western-style opposition that will come to power that represents the majority of the people. At the most pragmatic level, I mean, I, my, my, almost enthusiasm for this is nothing to do with Islam it has to do with populism and the idea that this is what democracy is about and this happens to be the orientation that will best express it so looked at that way it seems that there's there's really no other choice unless you're willing to accept the status quo uh, which I think essentially suggests more instability more terrorism
0: one more question uh
2: um, okay. Despite your opposition to uh, Bush and the Iraq War, do you think it's possible that with the uh, government that's cobbled together in Arab state and the Islamic political movements represented in it, that it could end up being the example that sure. then allows? The one thing left in your point when you answered answering is that even outside before 9/11, the U.S. and France and Europe opposed peace. Yes, power. I know. Yeah, so long yeah. before 9/11 it that by calling you guys this group in Iraq there could be that Western uh, lack of support for Islamic movements in politics this year I'm just trying to figure who's an mean there are unintended consequences well I, you know, any,
1: anyone who's interested in this subject I, at least I speak for myself at least I mean would I be upset it's a nice democratic s- political system emerged out of Iraq in which all political and ethnic and religious tendencies found expression and people lived happily ever after. I said, oh, no, but Bush invaded. Oh, not, I don't accept. Of course not. But that's, that's really stretching, I think. It'll take a while to see whether... And the scary part of that, of course, that, that becomes the new formula. And, and uh, I just don't buy that that's the way in which uh, it, it, it should go or, or, in fact, will go. Um, so I'm I'm pessimistic that the kind of outcome that we that we desire will ultimately succeed. And if it does, I think it will be a bad example to set uh, because uh, hey, Iraq is different from. Jordan, Jordan, Lebanon, Syrian Syria, and so forth. Uh, and therefore, uh, that, that would be an unfortunate, talking about unintended consequences, that would be another totally unintended consequence that we would think good of this exercise and therefore look elsewhere to, to duplicate it. Uh, I'd rather still go back to my feast days and say let those guys take a chance rather than, you know, invasion be the alternative uh, and so on. But, uh, but I, I agree with you. If it happens to turn out well, Uh, and they managed to coexist and create a democratic state, I fully support it.
0: Thank you very much, John. Uh, I had meant to to start out uh, by thanking the various sponsors of this series, (laughs) Uh, and seeing Alam Payand in the back there uh, asking a couple of questions reminded me of that uh, early on, uh, because Alam represents the Middle East Studies Center, which is... Uh, one of the sponsors of this event, also the political science department, also the honors uh, and scholars program, uh, and finally the Mershon Center, which is uh, the host here. Uh, it's taken four organizations to, to get them together uh, uh, to create this series, but it's really uh, going to be a terrific series, I think, and I thank you all very much. See you next Tuesday.